and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, March 11th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by a video conference by Tammy Luby of CNN. Hello. Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. And Rachel Kors of Stat News. Hi, Julie. So I thought we would spend most of this episode talking about all the health provisions of the COVID slash stimulus slash budget bill that cleared Congress on Wednesday. I think we're going to end up calling it ARPA for American Rescue Plan Act, although I guess a lot of people are just calling it ARP. Um, Obviously, there is another giant bullets of COVID related funding in there, more than $90 billion for everything from vaccine distribution and testing to beefing up the public health workforce to additional funding for community health centers and the Indian Health Service. But there's also quite a lot of other health policy changes, many of which we've mentioned in the past few weeks. But now that it's going to become law, I thought we should go through them in a little more detail, if only to give an idea of just how big this bill really is. So let's start with the Affordable Care Act. These are the first big expansions of the Affordable Care Act since it passed 11 years ago this month. What are these expansions and who would they help? So they're aimed at a lot of different populations that were not so much overlooked, but not as aided by the Affordable Care Act. So this is targeted both at people on the lowest end of the income spectrum and people on the higher end, middle-ish. So basically, there's no cliff anymore. There's no set income level where once you go a little bit over it, you no longer are eligible for any subsidies or any aid at all. That is now gone. So that it used to be what if you got over 400% of poverty, you were on your own and it could be, you know, like $100 would be the difference between $500 a month and $1,000 a month in, in Absolutely. Premiums. So now um, it's capped at a percentage of income for for folks uh, in that situation. And the subsidies are more generous um, for for people uh, at the lower end and in the middle. Right. So and I guess people up to 150% can now be guaranteed a premium free silver plan is that see people nodding right and also one other one other provision is also that goes for people who collect unemployment insurance which is a new provision for this year only the other provisions last for two years the unemployment compensation lasts this year alone and you know this will be a new program that they have to stand up so it may take a little bit more time for the unemployed to be able to access that benefit but it used to be that if you were getting unemployment benefits, you were not eligible for subsidies on the exchange, right? I'm not sure. Oh. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, something that we will we will definitely figure out. We will have to week. look into there, that. There was, I will say there was a thread on Twitter last night from Cynthia Cox, my colleague at KFF, about all the incredibly complicated interactions that it will take to stand this all up because there's a whole lot of changes and some of them are, you know, for a few months and some of them are for a year and some of them are for two years. And it's going to be really super confusing as health legislation almost always is. But one of the things that I feel like we should talk about is the fact that these provisions are virtually all temporary. Um, I would presume that Democrats would try to renew them when they're set to expire and kind of dare Republicans to take away benefits. Uh, Meanwhile, Republicans are complaining that this bill would trigger Medicare sequester, so cuts in Medicare. So the Democrats are going to dare the Republicans to let the sequester happen. This could turn into quite the political showdown in the next round of legislating, right? 
Absolutely. Especially, you know, that that two year window makes it a real gamble because Republicans are attempting to take back control of the House by that time, meaning that they just don't know if they're what they're going to have the votes to do. And so Democrats, of course, will want to make a lot of this permanent. Um, but whether they'll be able to do that is absolutely up in the air. And I would point out that very few people remember this, but in 2010, I mean, the reason that the ACA has never been expanded since it passed is that the Democrats lost the House in 2010. And the Republicans ran not on, uh, you know, think the government takeover of health care or, you know, the complications of the Affordable Care Act. What the Republicans mostly ran on were Medicare cuts. They said that the ACA was cutting Medicare, which it sort of kind of was. It was, you know, reducing some payments to providers to, to provide other benefits. But basically, you know, they had ads with, you know, granny being pushed off a cliff. So there's nothing Republicans like to run on more than accusing Democrats of doing something to Medicare. So they're setting this up even now. Um, it could be sort of quite the joust that happens before the 2022 midterms. Absolutely. One other related provision, I guess, that we haven't touched on quite as much is the financial incentives for states that haven't already expanded Medicaid to do so. That's next. Okay. Hold that for oh. one second. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can I add one more thing? Yes, about you add one subsidies? more thing and then we'll talk about Medicaid. Okay, Okay. well, first of all, I just looked up the unemployment compensation. Oh, and as far as I know, it is still considered income. I mean, that's what it says on healthcare.gov. Right. right. So I think if you had unemployment benefits, you could... It, you know, if you as long met as it was the low criteria, enough. as long as you, yeah, as long as you were under 400%, you could still get subsidies. So what's, so what's the change? If you got unemployment compensation, you get free coverage. That's the provision. The provision is, is that you don't have to pay premiums. Okay. So that that's, makes sense. that's the change. Ah. Yeah. And, but that's only for this year. That's only for this year. And that's the new program is like, okay, you, you know, you have to prove that you have unemployment compensation and then you can sign up for free coverage. But the other thing is, is that if you were laid off from your job but want to continue your employer-based coverage through COBRA, there's now a new provision that was beefed up by the Senate that between April and September, you can get free coverage. The federal government will pay all of your COBRA premiums. And that is a huge amount of money, as we all know. You know, employer-based health insurance is pretty expensive. And COBRA is very unaffordable for many people, even though they want to keep their great employer plan. So now between... April and September, they'll have free coverage thanks to the federal government. Yes, which was I was going to get to after Medicaid, but that's okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now let's talk about Medicaid. <laughs> there are a number of changes to Medicaid. Some of them are ACA related and some of them not so much. But the ACA related one, Rachel, as you were about to say, tries to encourage the t remaining 12 holdout states to join by offering them a financial incentive. What kind of financial incentive are they offering? Um, to my understanding, it's a 5% increase to the state's, what's called like an FMAP. It's a, a federal matching rate for, um, you know, state Medicaid spending. And from kind of initial comments, it's not sure that this like financial incentive is actually going to persuade GOP governors or state legislatures to make immediate big changes right away. Um, but, you know, the, it, I think the incentive is good for um, 10 years. So there's a potential for some like political change in these states that might kind of change those fortunes. Or, you know, if there are ballot initiatives, then, you know, that provides a little more um, support for these initiatives later on. And then I think the House decided to pay for this provision by forcing drug makers to pay more um, 
rebates on um, certain drugs to state Medicaid programs. And pharma was able to water that down a bit. So it, it goes into effect a little later than I think it originally did. But the provision did survive, which is surprising, I guess, given the drug interest influence and, you know, the COVID vaccines, they've garnered a lot of good. Just, just a reminder that there's still some really big states out there that haven't expanded, notably Texas and Florida and Georgia um, and, and a lot of a lot more southern states, although apparently Wyoming is looking at expanding, which several people I said, I did not have that on my bingo card. I, I looked at those uh, incentives sort of in two ways. You know, the cynical way is that a lot of states opposition is purely ideological. And no matter how much they sweeten the pot, they're just never going to be interested because this is part of Obamacare and it is a government program. But we have seen over the last few years a steady drip, drip, drip of these holdout states that you never would have expected to go for this going for it prior to these incentives. And so the non-cynical part is that this really could make a difference. And like Rachel said, you know, governorships could flip, state legislatures could flip. Um, It's really it's really up in the air. Yes. Tammy, your extra credit is about this very issue. Why don't you do it now? Exactly. So uh, my extra credit, which I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, is from Vox, from Dylan Scott. It's headlined, a new Democratic plan to expand Medicaid hits a big snag. Republican governors, as we've said. So Dylan talked to a few of them. And I'll just relay a a few points because we've pretty much talked about the main thrust of the story is that it's ideological, not monetary. But he says that he went on a press conference with Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves to ask him if the funding incentive would prompt uh, him to reevaluate the decision. And his answer was, no, sir, it will not. In Florida, Ron DeSantis, the governor remains opposed to the expansion of Medicaid in Florida. Christy Noem, the governor knows that expanding Medicaid is not the answer to accessing quality health care in South Dakota. So it sounds like, you know, he does say he does mention Wyoming and, you know, we have a couple of states. There are a couple of non-expansion states already with Democratic governors, Kansas, North Carolina, Wisconsin. You know, so the question is, can they get the Republican legislature on board? Who knows? But, you know, one issue that we've talked about is a lot of the states that have expanded recently have done so through ballot initiatives. So this will be yet one more arrow in the quiver, I guess, for the ballot initiative to say, hey, if you expand, we can get all even more federal money and, you know, even millions and millions more for the state. So but it won't be quick. I think there's only three or four more states where you could actually do ballot initiatives on this. You can't. I think they're looking at Florida soon. Yeah. So, all right. Still on Medicaid, there is another change that's flown mostly under the radar that would allow uh, states to expand postpartum coverage to women who qualify for Medicaid on the basis of pregnancy. That now ends after 60 days. States would have the option of making that last a full year. Why is this important, people who've been writing about maternal mortality? Across the country, there's been this, you know, increased awareness about um, these really concerning maternal outcomes, especially in communities of color. And it's not just like the idea of mothers dying during childbirth. You know, it's it's definitely, it's this long-term chronic health disparities that manifest themselves and put certain mothers more at risk even after they give birth. And the follow-up care a lot of time isn't there if their health coverage cuts off after 60 days. So I think there's been this push by advocates for years to really make these benefits more robust and offer mothers more support and just really make sure that they're providing the full suite of care services. So if there are any you know follow-up health issues that arise, then they can get those addressed and these mothers don't have to worry about falling off the Medicaid cover 
average cliff. And when they're taking their kids in for checkups, then that's another available avenue for them to just make sure everything's going okay and hopefully make some progress in um, mitigating those really um, concerning outcomes. There are also some big pieces of this bill that I call health adjacent in that they're not specifically changes to health programs, but they do affect health in a big way. Tammy, you've been looking at a lot of these safety net program changes. Um, What are some of those? Well, this actually, and this is my story that is up today, is one of the biggest anti-poverty initiatives that the U.S. federal government has done in half a century. Unfortunately, it's temporary, you know, so it's not as much as the war on poverty in the 60s. But some of the things that it will do is it's extending the 15% increase of food stamps uh, through September. So a family of four can get about another $100 to buy food, which is, you know, pretty important because we know that hunger and health are very related. Uh, same with unemployment benefits. It'll continue to special pandemic programs to allow, you know, freelancers and, and independent contractors and gig workers, as well as people who've been unemployed now for months and would have run out of their state benefits were it not for this federal overlay, plus the extra $300 boost that goes through a little just about Labor Day. And, you know, it's providing assistance for people who are facing eviction, uh, you know, helping them pay rent or mortgage. And one of the, the biggest issues in terms of poverty is it's changing the existing child tax credit, again, for only one year. Uh, but it is going to boost the amount for certain qualifying families. And the most impactful provision is the fact that the tax credit will become fully refundable. So there's, you know, roughly 23 million children out there now who don't qualify. They're in households that don't qualify for the full credit because they make too little. Their families make too little to qualify. And so now those households will be able to get the benefit. And it will also be, hopefully, depending on whether the IRS, with all of the other things the IRS has to do with this bill and otherwise, it will be set up as monthly or periodic payments between July and uh, December. So the experts say that this could reduce child poverty by half for this year, which is huge. Setting setting up, a, a, again, the fight about what to do when it expires. Um, all right. Well, before we get to the COVID news this week, there's a reminder that there is still no Secretary of Health and Human Services, but we are getting closer. Um, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has started the floor process to get uh, California Attorney General and former House member Javier Becerra confirmed. But it's more complicated than usual. Right, Alice? Yes. So the fact that he did not get any Republican support in committee means that they have to go through an extra rigmarole on the Senate floor already. On, you know, this is peak Senate. Is that the technical term? <laughs> this is sort of peak Senate. They have to vote to discharge his nomination from the committee and get it to the floor. Then they have to do the cloture and the actual vote itself. Um, and so just that first piece is happening today, but it'll sort of be a sign of where people are at. Um, so far... We're expecting almost unanimous Democratic support, if not unanimous, and almost unanimous, if not unanimous, Republican opposition. It might be necessary for the vice president to come break the tie on this one, which hasn't been the case for the other cabinet nominees so far. So definitely a a closer one, a more contentious one. He's faced a lot of opposition from Republicans over his abortion rights litigation, over him suing other states as the attorney general of California. They have made a big deal about his background as a congress member and attorney rather than a medical expert, 
Although, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, most HHS secretaries have not themselves been doctors or medical experts. So one to watch. It looks like he's going through, you know, it's it's taken months and this will then get the ball rolling on a lot of other nominees for top health positions to help fill out uh, HHS and the other agencies in the middle of a pandemic when uh, they have a few things to take care of. Yeah. So speaking of the pandemic, COVID is still here, still bad, but getting a little bit better, at least for now. Um, The CDC finally came out with its guidelines on what it's safe for vaccinated people to do, which is basically hang out in small groups with other vaccinated people. Seriously, CDC is walking a tightrope here. Um, If they do things like tell people it's okay to travel, they risk spreading variants further. But if they say that once you're fully vaccinated, very little changes and they depress the desire to get vaccinated. So how, how are these particular guidelines going over? There seems to be kind of some people who say that they don't go far enough and some people who say, no, they're appropriate for now. Well, so there's been a lot of criticism that the message about the vaccine has not been positive enough. It's more been get this so you won't die, which is not a very motivating message to people because then they associate vaccines with death and dying. I find that really motivating. (laughs) I'm just saying this is what the research shows. (laughs) But when you have a positive, hopeful message of get this vaccine and you can hug your loved ones again, that is a lot more motivating for a lot of people. Um, And so the criticism has been that the message is You have to get vaccinated, but once you do, nothing changes. You still can't see people. You still have to wear your mask. And that was really frustrating to a lot of people and sort of they felt, why why even bother? Um, And so this is an attempt to sort of course correct and say, no, the vaccine will meaningfully change your life as well as changing our national condition. And meanwhile, governors are moving ahead to make changes. So, I mean, I live in New York and Cuomo just dropped, they're starting in April, I think April 1st, Cuomo just dropped the requirement that uh, people, you know, traveling to New York from other states have to quarantine. So international residents still do, international travelers still do. But now basically, I guess in a couple of weeks, anyone can come to New York and travel and tour and do touristy things. States are hungry for this. Yeah, there, there's still a lot of concern about, you know, the spread of the variants. I mean, the, the, the good news is that, as Andy Slavitt reported yesterday, uh, one in four adults has now received at least one dose of the vaccine. Um, but obviously, that means that uh, three or four have not. Um, and the bad news is that even as vaccines, you know, vaccine coverage is going up, it's really uneven. In Alaska and Arizona, they're basically vaccinating anyone who wants it. While in places like Cough Cough, my home state of Maryland, it will be weeks before a lot of high-risk people are even eligible to start competing for appointments. Um, I know in New York, people are eligible, but it's hard to get them. That's the same thing in in D.C. Much of the policy impetus is to reach the vaccine hesitant and those with the most barriers to getting the vaccine, which is as it should be. We can't reach herd immunity unless all these people get vaccinated too. But meanwhile, it's literally the Hunger Games out there in a lot of states with hundreds of thousands of people chasing tens of thousands of shots and crashing websites and people cheating and, you know, I, I wonder, what is this doing to our trust in public health and sort of the, the ability for us to, you know, trust public health being able to do this? There's all kinds of concern about, you know, is this is this fair? And I just worry that that people, not so much the vaccine hesitant, we'll talk about them in a second, but the people who are anxious for the vaccine and frustrated because the priorities keep changing and the systems keep not really working as they should. 
It is crazy. I mean, so earlier in the week, I was just looking around to see if there were any appointments available and everything, you know, they talk about the Javits Center, you know, last week, I think they it was, I can't keep track of dates anymore, but I think what Johnson & Johnson started being delivered last week, right? <laughs> so the governor in New York made a big deal. Oh, John, you know, the Javits Center and a lot of these giant locations around the state are going to have Johnson & Johnson. They're opening overnight hours, which, you know, some other countries Israel has had since the beginning, but we haven't. Um, and so I went to Javits and I was like, oh, well, you know, I, I wasn't eligible, but I was like, let me see if I can just book an appointment. What's the situation? No appointments for for six weeks through like mid-April. And I was like, well, this is crazy. What happened to Johnson & Johnson? What happened to the 24 hours? But then yesterday, all of a sudden, you know, I found out about this because my nephew is a worker, a city worker. And he just said, hey, they've just opened up tens of thousands of slots in Javits. That was not, I didn't get any email about that until actually later in the day, I did get an alert. So I went onto the Javits site to look and there was no availability until May. So they opened up these slots, but the first date available was early May. And I was just like, this is, you know, this is crazy. This is another two months. It's been interesting. So I've I've referenced my my friend in New York who works at a clinic and is administering vaccines. And so she is very sympathetic to how from the outside it can just seem so unfair and arbitrary and and there are just things going on behind the scenes that make it the case. And so they're they're in a situation where there can be a couple, a married couple who both go to her same clinic and one calls. They happen to have just received the vaccines and they can book an appointment. You know, an hour later, the other member of the couple calls. Sorry, we don't have any slots. They don't get notified by the city or the state until the last minute of what's going to be available when. And it it really creates a sort of a Hunger Games mentality, which is very unfortunate. And very stressful. I've decided I would not be good at the Hunger Games. Rachel, right. you wanted to say something. I just want to say that we're kind of in this, like, window of time here that will end where there's a scarcity. And in my life personally, I think these conversations are already starting of, you know, saying, oh, you know, we're able to pre-register for vaccines in D.C. And, you know, some people don't want to pre-register because they've decided that they don't want the vaccine. And we may have an oversupply. And then the question is, what do we do with all these extra vaccines? And how long do we hold them? And how do we help the global community? Like there, we're on the cusp of, you know, another public health crisis and trust and from fairness to a belief in the science and how, you know, these benefits, as we were talking about earlier of vaccination, you know, really come to be. Do employers require them, you know, for travel? Like, what what does this look like? And I think, you know, this is a really concerning time um, that we're in. But I think there is a future with um, different hard questions. Well, that and that's a perfect segue into what I was just about to ask, which is that, you know, one of the reasons that there are so many available appointments in, you know, places like Alabama and Arizona is that people who are eligible aren't coming to get them, which is why they're opening up. Um, there seems to be a troubling trend that the desire to get the vaccine or not is falling along partisan lines, with Republicans showing the most resistance, aside from former President Trump, who turns out to have gotten the vaccine in private before he left the White House. Who could best convince Republicans to actually get get the shot. I mean, that's what it looks like it's going to take here. Somebody they trust is going to have to go out and say, you should do this. Well, George Bush just did an ad with the other presidents. So will that help? Maybe, you know, I mean, that's the goal of the ad to have the four former presidents and only one of them is a Republican, but maybe that will help. 
Well, there is another Republican, but he clearly does not. He's want not it. in the ad. Yeah, he's <laughs> no. <laughs> as, as we've noted, he's not in the ad. I mean, are there are there ways? I know that Frank Luntz, the the Republican pollster, is like looking at messaging to help bring along Republicans. That that strikes me. Boy, if anybody can figure it out, probably he can. It worries me. I you know I wonder. I mean, it, Mitch McConnell is pro vaccine. I could see Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy. Although I guess the, the sort of the Trump wing of the party isn't all that enamored of Mitch McConnell or. Certainly not Mike Pence. But I would think that this is going to be as big a problem going forward as, you know, the people that we've talked about that, you know, who've sort of traditionally been hesitant about this vaccine. I mean, I think it's going to be a bigger problem. The polls show that more than any racial group or age group, it's really Republicans that that are the most um, hesitant or resistant to the vaccine. And so the question of how to reach them is hugely important. And it's something that the country needs to be thinking about now, even though we're not in the situation now where we're begging people to take it. We're in the situation of turning people away who want to take it. But very soon, as Rachel mentioned, it's it's going to flip. The supply and demand dynamics are going to flip. And that's why it was such a big deal that President Trump did not do anything to publicize his own taking the shot. And I think there's also a credibility problem with some of the figures who could be pro-vaccine messengers, given that they spent so much of the past year questioning the science on masks and social distancing and promoting hydroxychloroquine and other things without evidence. You know, we all remember the injecting bleach uh, day. Uh, So I think that even if some of those people started right now communicating accurate information on vaccines, they, they have a credibility problem from their prior statements during the pandemic. One more topic this week. Meanwhile, Democrats may be in charge in Washington, but in states, the fight against abortion rights is continuing unabated. Arkansas this week became the latest state to enact a currently unconstitutional abortion ban in hopes of getting the newly configured Supreme Court to take a whack at Roe v. Wade. And Alice, Texas, after literally years of trying, got permission to evict Planned Parenthood from their Medicaid program. What's that going to mean? Well, in Texas specifically, it means that now about 8,000 Medicaid enrollees, low-income folks in the state, will no longer be able to go to Planned Parenthood clinics for care. People should remember that it was already banned to have abortion covered by Medicaid, except in very narrow circumstances. And so these are folks going to Planned Parenthood for primary care, for contraception, for cancer screenings, whatnot. And now they won't be able to. And we know that in many parts of the country, including Texas, there are provider deserts. It's very hard to find another source of care. And so that's why Planned Parenthood had asked the state to grant them a six-month transition period to help those patients find new providers. And the state instead said, you have 30 days. That got extended a little bit because of the winter storms. But now it's going to be a challenge. And so that's what it means for the state. But Nationally, this is another chapter in an ongoing saga. Lots of different states have wanted and tried to kick Planned Parenthood out of their Medicaid programs, and federal courts have split on whether they're allowed to or whether people on Medicaid have the right to go to the provider of their choice. And so this issue could ultimately get resolved by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court punted on it recently, but it could always come back. 
It is. We should point out written into the Medicaid statute that beneficiaries have free choice of provider, the ones who are obviously not in managed care. But um, in general, you have free choice of provider if you're a Medicaid beneficiary. And that's what all of this fighting has been about, about what that actually means. But we will obviously see, see more of this in the coming weeks and months. Okay, now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Tammy, you have already done yours. Alice, why don't you go next? So I have a story from The New Yorker called L.A.'s Disorganized Vaccination Rollout and the Dream of Universal Healthcare. And uh, I was drawn to this because my parents just recently went through this in Los Angeles. And it's it's just a really good illustration of how government's good intentions to get the vaccine out to as many people as quickly as possible is just in diametric opposition to the goal of getting it to the people who need it the most and who have the most difficulty accessing it. And so, like we've seen in many other parts of the country, L.A. really focused, especially at first, on setting up these mega sites at Dodger Stadium and other places. But those all depended on people getting appointments themselves online, uh, getting there in a car and having a lot of time to wait in line. And if you are low income, if you have housing issues, if you don't have access to the internet, if you don't speak English, if you don't have a car, those are all huge barriers. And it wasn't until later that the vaccine started getting to these smaller clinics uh, in more diverse parts of the county. And so, um, you know, I think of my own parents and they had a lot of difficulty getting an appointment, but they have all of the privileges. They have cars. They have a lot of time. They have the internet access and internet literacy to uh, refresh, refresh, refresh until they got finally got their shots. And so this is a really good illustration. Um, there was a great line in saying, you know, you have to take the water to the fire to put out the fire. You can't expect the fire to come to the water. Um, and I thought that was just a really good illustration of uh, the struggle that's going on in a lot of parts of the country. I know it's temporary, but boy, it's still a mess. Rachel. Yes, mine is How One Firm Put an Extraordinary Burden on the U.S.'s Federal Stockpile in the New York Times by Chris Hampy and Cheryl Stolberg. And I just thought this um, piece was just stunning example of contract reporting. And as I've just begun to learn, reporting on federal contracts, especially in branch national security is so difficult. And the fact that they, you know, connected 60 interviews and reviewed like 40,000 pages of documents to, you know, construct this really impactful reason of why weren't we prepared for a pandemic? Oh, because half of the spending on our federal stockpile is kind of captured by this one biotech firm making anthrax vaccines that, you know, have a viable and cost-effective alternative in therapeutics. So I think it was just this really impactful story of power in Washington and money and just kind of the threat of, you know, one manufacturer has monopoly manufacturing power over something that may be important, but just that leverage and how that played out in the pandemic, I thought was just really great reporting and really impactful as well. Yeah, government contracting is uh, an unexplored because it seems boring, but really important piece of journalism. Uh, my story is by our sometime podcast panelist, Sarah Cliff at the New York Times. It's called a $22,368 bill that dodged and weaved to find a gap in America's health system. 
It's about a patient from Texas who got really sick with what certainly seemed to be COVID early in the pandemic last year, but who ended up with an enormous hospital bill because the hospital couldn't prove that's what he had and therefore couldn't collect from the federal COVID fund for hospitals, so they billed him instead. Uh, He was caught in an unintentional lapse in coverage. He'd been covered by the Affordable Care Act and was about to qualify for Medicare. And while the hospital offered him a chance to qualify for aid, that offer came months before the bill actually did. And so when the bill came and he asked for the aid, they said, no, that offer had expired. And uh, as Sarah pointed out, and I completely agree with her, this is a microcosm of what a real mess our health system still is, even with all the money that we are throwing at it. So much more work to be done. Okay, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound okay, even when we're in different places. And also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealthoneword at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Rachel? At Rachel Kors. Tammy? At Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. Alice? At Alice Olstein. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.